This is a GRDC podcast. Wasn't long ago when we all thought that what was happening in Europe this year would happen in Australia next year. Oh, ha ha. That's right out of the window, isn't it? G'day, I'm Chris Brown. Europe is the home of rigorous legislation that regulates the availability of farm chemicals. Not many places that are tougher. British farm consultant Keith Norman was in Australia recently to talk about some of that regulation and what might be coming up in the future, both in the sphere of further regulation, but also future technology that might fill the void. I caught up with Keith in Wagga Wagga in the south of New South Wales and he began our conversation by painting a picture of how the regulation in the European Union differs to that in Australia. Yes, we are very heavily regulated. There are currently around about five big pieces of regulation that is in place for every agrochemical, whether it's a new entrant into the market or it's a reapproval, because most active ingredients have to go through reapproval every 10 years. So these are getting more onerous in terms of the demands that the regulation insists upon, the, the numbers of hoops that a product has got to get through before it's given the green light. The most recent one of which is the endocrine disruption regulation. What is that? So that's basically anything that could be a risk to the endocrine system of a human being, either as a bystander, a spray operator, somebody who eats the produce. And if there's any risk at all from that pesticide changing or affecting any way the endocrine system of the human being, it will be rejected. These regulations, are they based on scientific fact or is there politics involved in it as well? A bit of both actually. I think the politics is that the public want to be more and more reassured that what they're eating is safe. They want to see pesticides applied and managed and and used properly, which I don't blame them. But I also think that there is some degree of science in terms of the regulation themselves. I mean, the endocrine disruption regulation I've just referred to took about three years for them to actually define the threshold and define what it meant. And that was all done scientifically by you know brilliant scientists throughout Europe, and they put together the package and said, this is what we believe is where we should be. So that was science. But political, public pressure brought it into being in the first place, so it's yeah. a bit of both. A bit of both. The regulation's tougher because of that political pressure, or are they based on science? They are all based on science, but the number of them, I think, is political. So we have, a, for example, a water framework directive which is not just looking at pesticides in water, but it's also looking at uh, nutrients getting into water and groundwater and rivers, etc. And again, that, that's a, a tough bit of legislation as well. And there's water catchment zones being defined that have to be completely pesticide free. Uh, there's a lot of testing going on in rivers. But, you know, it's not always agriculture that's to blame. Industry and, in fact, households. And, you know, we're seeing a huge rise in phosphate in rivers and in watercourses in the UK. And if you look at the correlation between phosphate rise and dishwashing and washing machines, there's a very, very close correlation because obviously detergents are very rich in phosphate. What are some of the chemistries that Australian farmers would be aware of that are no longer available to European farmers or soon won't be? One of the big ones that's just recently been announced and we will lose this year is chlorothalonil and I know that you're using that a lot on pulse crops over here but it's a very 
main building block of any fungicide program in cereals in the UK. It's a multi-site fungicide and it's basically underpinning and supporting the new chemistries, the SDHIs, etc. and the existing triazol chemistry. It's kind of slowing down the demise in terms of resistance because it's a, a multi-site product. So we are unfortunately going to lose that this year, which is a huge loss. We've just lost chlorpyrifos in the last three years. So soil pest management is becoming much, much more difficult. We've lost the neonicotinoids as seed treatments and spray-ons. They're gone. They're completely gone, yeah. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of problems now trying to control aphid vectors for BYDV. And the aphid population is becoming resistant to pyrethroids, and that is really the only option that we have left. So it's not well thought through. I think fine, let's, yeah, let's be challenged on the existing chemistry. And if there's a problem, let's acknowledge there's a problem, but let's have a solution in place before the previous one goes. That's what has been the consequence? Resistance has increased? Well, the problem is because there are less tools in the toolbox now, the ones that are still there are being used more and more. So there's more selection pressure going on. And also the regulation type in the, re the approval system is very much favoring single site specific products and because of that at their very nature it's much easier to get a mutation that will find a way in through that single point of activity and if you look back in history the SDHIs have been in use for about five years their efficacies drop from high 90s to about 60 percent in five years the two mainstay triazoles epoxyconazole prothiconazole have gone from 90 plus percent and they're now down to about 20% efficacy in the UK on septoria in a curative capacity. So, you know, the, there's a, the trajectory is very clear to see that a new product coming into the market will be under pressure from mutations and resistance. And therefore, having these other multi-sites there to steady that reduction is a very important thing. But unfortunately, we've lost it. One uh, chemical that is set to be banned in a few countries is glyphosate, which is it's scary for Australian farmers to think that that might happen. Yeah, and in fact there are three EU countries saying that after 2021, which is when the current approval runs out within Europe, will no longer support its use. Is that a, it's going to happen? It's going to happen. That's not based on science, is it? No, no, it's emotion. It's public feeling. There is still no conclusive scientific evidence that it is a carcinogen. What it needs is a, a break put into this to say, look, let's get all the evidence looked at in a totally independent way with a panel of experts that are not allegiant to a manufacturer or a, a, an anti-pesticide type of organization. And let's look at the science because in my inbox, I get two emails a day now from American sources asking me if I've ever handled glyphosate have I been diagnosed recently yeah. with Hodgkin's non-lymphoma? Because if so, we will act for you. Yeah, the class actions, uh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Um, it's starting know, here as well. Is it? Yeah. So there are, I think there's a queue of about 42,000 cases waiting to be heard for people that are claiming their cancer has been caused by glyphosate. But, you know, how do you untangle 42,000 lifestyles? What's their diet? Have they smoked? How much have they drunk? Yeah. You know, what is their exercise level? So what impact have these regulatory restrictions had on investment by chemical companies? It's had a massive effect. To bring an active ingredient to the market is about 285 million US dollars. 
10 years ago it was about 185 million so it's gone up 100 million in 10 years to get a product through the system. The hoops have got greater in terms of number and the bars have been set higher and higher so the risks to getting a product through are much greater for a manufacturer. So he has got to be absolutely sure across a whole wealth of testing in, of that active ingredient that he is going to get that through because there's a lot at stake if he doesn't. So it's not just about the active ingredient itself, it's the breakdown in the environment, it's the metabolites from that product when it's in the environment. What do they do? How do they affect soil biota? Not just the active ingredient itself, but it's, it's breakdown products. What is the feeding studies? What's the ecotox? What, how does it behave in groundwater? It's all of these things, and they're all fairly stringent and difficult tasks yeah. to get through. So if we look at the actual total number of active ingredients, say back in the, the 80s, the 90s, you know, there, were, there was a lot of activity there. The, the, the new active ingredients were just coming in the whole time. Today, there's a massive reduction. So is technology going to save us? Technology will certainly have a big part to play. I don't think it will ever be a total replacement for plant protection products. I think there are two areas that I think will be really, really important. First one is genetics yeah. and biotechnology. So there's a lot of activity going on with gene editing. And I know that our Prime Minister Boris Johnson did say that he would support that, you know, based on the science, which is exactly what it should be. So and are we talking there about the old term GMOs? No, this is completely different because this is not bringing in a gene from outside, from another species. This is just fine-tuning the genetics of the plant that it already has. So it might be upregulating a gene that's better at making it fend off disease, or it might be down-regulating a gene that makes it wide open to a disease, or whatever it might be. It's just fine-tuning its own genetic structure in one or two places to make a big difference. And I think that could very much have a big impact on the amount of agrochemicals that we use, certainly from disease control and, and perhaps pest control. There is also a lot of work going on. The wheat that we all grow in the world is basically made up of three genomes. This goes back hundreds of thousands of years where these crosses took place naturally in history. And the third genome, there's a big project going on with NIAB in Cambridge and also the John Innes Centre in, in Norwich looking at substituting that third genome, the D1, with a D genome from another wheat species somewhere else in the world, the Mediterranean species that has got a much better resistance to what they call abiotic stress, so drought, heat, temperature differences, etc. And bringing that new set of genes in and combining it with the existing two, there is the chance of them producing a much more resilient, robust wheat that is less reliant on pesticides and that is ongoing and you know there are not only yield implications and benefits of that technology but there is also a definite benefit in terms of reduction in spend on agrochemicals. It sounds like necessity is driving that to a large extent yes. particularly in Europe. Yes and the, the other good thing is that in terms of genetics there is now a technique called speed breeding being developed by the John Innes Centre whereby in a controlled environment, in a glass house, they know exactly the right combinations of humidity, temperature and light and LED light wavelengths to grow crops quickly. And they can now produce six generations of wheat in a year. 
So if you think about that transformation of you make an initial cross and you want to see what the progeny looks like, you know, not that long ago you'd have had to wait a whole 12-month period before you saw it. Now you can do it six times a year. You can look at what that cross has done and you can bring out the best crosses, cross them again, look at what happens then. And so it's really putting a lot of momentum into the system of getting something out that's good. In theory, a, a new variety every couple of years? Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Now, you did talk about some incredible new tools that are either available now or soon will be available. Just tell me a bit more about them. There's a lot happening in remote sensing. One of my clients, Hummingbird Technologies, they're developing systems whereby we're not just looking at a field from an NDVI or a, a crop health perspective, which is obviously very valuable, but it's looking at other things as well. For example, the rate of change that a crop grows and the speed it's growing, the biomass it has. Because when you see the images of how a crop grows, as a consultant or an agronomist, you can actually download that information over breakfast before you go and see a client and have all the information in front of you of where you want to go and visit. And you can arrive at the client and say, right, I want to go to this paddock, this paddock, this paddock, because there's a problem. There's a and, and you target your, your crop inspection looking at problems and hopefully coming up with solutions in real time will make a difference. There is also the ability with a lot of the, the big data analysis of actually looking for within season yield prediction. So this is actually looking at, again at the way the crop's growing and being able to back compare that growth rate with a, a previous yield and to see whether you're on track with the way your crop was growing this year oh, right. as to whether it's going to be this yield or a lower yield. And is that very far into the future? Or? I would imagine as a commercial service it will be out in a couple of years. It's still being validated because there's a big danger of bringing something to market that's not validated and fully robust. But that will enable agronomists and farmers to start thinking, okay, if this is a, a six or an eight ton crop, I'm going to spend the money. If this is a one and a half or a two ton crop, I'm going to save it because, you know, it's just not worth investing in it. And those kind of decisions, I think, have got a value. Without a doubt, some fairly heavy regulation in the European Union, but good to hear about some new technology that may help farmers fill some voids. European consultant Keith Norman, my name is Chris Brown. <laughs>